Thank you, Father, for today and the things that we can expose ourselves to. We appreciate so much the benefits that we have of being part of the family of God. They are overwhelming. They are abundant, far beyond what our comprehension could ever fathom. We ask our Father that as we enjoy the things of the Spirit of God, that you would be pleased to teach us the truth from this passage. May our Heavenly Father, we be people today who are attentive to what the Spirit of God seeks to teach us. May it benefit our spiritual and Christian growth so that we will be more like the Lord Jesus Christ and be as effective as we possibly can be in all aspects of Christian living. Now, our Father, we commit this day to you. We ask that you would be pleased to minister to our minds, our hearts, our emotions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I was rummaging through a bunch of uh, uh, material that uh, I had, uh, and uh, over the years I have kind of kept the file of, you know, just neat little things that... Uh, that uh, I've come across and I, I stick them and I say, you know, someday I may use this, someday I may use this. But anyway, I was going through that particular file this last week because I was looking for a document that I made up years and years ago. You know how your memory uh, in the back of your mind uh, does those kind of things. And I came across this particular chart and let me, if I may, just show you. Now, this has nothing to do with the book of James, all right? But it's just kind of a little... Um, what's a bonus? Okay. You didn't pay for this. This is just a bonus. You didn't pay for it anyway. The idea. Uh, it is interesting that over the years, what has transpired is that there is a mainstream of biblical authority. Uh, the way we see the scriptures and we see the scriptures in a specific certain way, uh, and they're understood in a certain way. And the interesting thing is during the New Testament era when the uh, New Testament was being written and the Old Testament was also uh, already with us, uh, people like Peter and James and Paul and Jude and Luke and all these people, they understood how to understand the scriptures in a certain way. Now, after they passed on and died, they weren't there to interpret and tell us what the scriptures mean. Now, I have got three dates on this list, and you can see the whole idea, and I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't understand how to do this, but I've got three dates here, and this is kind of the timeline down to the present, all right? For the first 1,400 years, what was being done is... <laughs> How did that happen? All right. What do these things always happen? Dave, would you tell me? The computer always wins, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. yep. All right, hang on. Let mm -hmm. me find out what's going on here. 
PowerPoint. Uh, let's go all the way down here to where we are. Mainstream of Biblical uh, Understanding and Authority. So, during the first 1400 years, certain traditions were established. And this is when the church fathers and all the people that lived after the New Testament era were trying to make sense of how should we understand things? How should we see things as the scripture presents them? Uh, do we have everything in Scripture that is necessary, or do we need to read something into the Scripture that wasn't there and should have been there? Uh, that's, and so traditions were established. And there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of people that did all kinds of writing with regard to this. After the traditions were established... The next era, starting with the 1500s, just prior to the Reformation, the next thing that came in is reason. We started thinking through all of these things that we were presented with, and we would wrestle with the scriptures. And quite frankly, it is during the first era and the second era that many of our theological concepts were established. Uh, for example, how does a person get to heaven? What's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What about the doctrine of last things and stuff like that? I have attended the pre-trib rapture research conference for years and years and years, and one of the interesting things that is taking place uh, during the more recent conferences is that there are scholars who are looking at all of the writings during the age of reason and the age of tradition. And one of the big complaints that the non-premillennials and non-pre-trib people talk about is there's no evidence. It's a recent anomaly. And one of the things they're discovering, oh, wait a minute. Maybe they didn't say it the way we say it now, but it was all there. And they're finding out that this is something that is very much with us. Now, if we've had tradition, if we've had reason, what do you think the next era is? As soon as I put it up here, all of you will say, yep. That's it. <laughs> Feelings. Feelings. It is interesting that the, that was supposed to click. There it is. It is interesting that right around the turn of the century from the 1800s to the 1900s is when the charismatic movement started exploding. 
And so you have all of these things that are now in focus with regard to how to understand the Bible. Does everybody understand what I'm getting at? Uh, and this to me is extremely interesting because to stay on, if you please, what you might call the, uh, the for lack of a better way to say it, the straight and narrow, if you please, and go off on any one of these tangents, it's a, uh, a tightrope. It is a tightrope in Christianity. And uh, the, the entire area of uh, mysticism, for example, feelings-oriented, uh, if you want to read something that I find rather interesting, this is really self-serving. I presented a paper at the Grace Evangelical Conference as well as the Pre-Trib Rapture Research Conference on mysticism. And you type in Grace Evangelical Conference and then on the journals type in my name, you will see that entire manuscript. If you go to the Pre-Trib Conference, they have all of these documents and there's this paper on mysticism. There's a lot of similarity there, but if you wanna see how I approached it probably, oh, I don't know, what, seven, eight years ago when I presented these things, uh, you can do that. But this is exploding. You cannot go to a Christian bookstore today without just being inundated with feelings and how we should approach the scriptures. All right, now, that's, a detour. What'd you say? Can't go to a Christian bookstore, period. <laughs> well, yeah, they're, they're kind of go on the internet, you'll find. <laughs> and, you know, I said something last week that I was, uh, that I understand I was a little bit mocked for. I talked about going and renting The Princess Bride. <laughs> somebody, somebody caught me on that. You know, I, I'm dated, all right? I don't mind it. Hey, I have a often said they're building the Museum for Antique Preachers, and I'm gonna be one of the very first in it, so. Uh, anyway, when we come to James, and I really want to stress this because I have not seen this addressed anywhere, and I'm not saying I'm the only one that has ever thought about it, but in the last couple of weeks, I talked to three different pastors and I explained this concept to them. And every single one of them said, I've never heard this before. I've never heard this before. Now, the interesting thing is I used to have probably about 10 commentaries on the book of James. And uh, when I retired, I gave half of, well, almost three fourths of my library to a younger pastor. But I did keep the uh, quote unquote good stuff, all right? But I, uh, I have probably about three or four commentaries on the book of James now that I make reference to periodically. I have six study Bibles, and I consulted every single one of them this last week to see if they even addressed this particular situation that James was the very first book of the New Testament was written. The interesting thing is the book of James has internal evidence. What we mean by that is it has statements in the book that would indicate to us that it was written very, very early, written to the 12 tribes that are dispersed. 
The word synagogue is used in James chapter 2. So I am suggesting that you probably will not see this concept in most commentaries, nor will you see it in most study Bibles. And I'm really sticking my neck out on this because I really think this is an overlooked, overlooked point that must be understood if you're going to properly understand the book of James. Most of them will say that according to Josephus, James died in 62, way down here. So it must have been written sometime before he died. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> well, how much sooner before he died? I'm suggesting probably 30 years before he died. So that's where we are on this. So when you look at a study Bible, when you look at different things and they say, well, it must have been written uh, in the late 50s or early 60s, maybe, maybe in the late 40s, I say, wait a minute. It was probably written just a couple years after the church began in Acts chapter 2. All right, let me go on. We have been looking at the first section of the book of James. Let me read the section so that we have it in front of us. James, a bondservant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ of the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greeting. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result or its complete result that you may be perfect, not sinlessly perfect, but mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Last week we talked a little bit about what wisdom was. We suggested that wisdom has the idea of skill, for living, if you, ask, if you lack the wisdom or skill to get through a situation, ask God for it. It doesn't have a whole bunch of insight up here. It just means how to get through it, how to live through it. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position and let the rich man glory in his humiliation because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and the flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trials. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. I suggested that this is the crown which is life to all those which the Lord has promised to all those who love him. Now he moves to the second. What we're supposed to do is welcome them. When we're in the midst of trials, the next thing he says, starting with verse 13, is don't blame God. 
Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. Two attitudes that we must have when trials come our way, and they will come our way, is welcome them. There is a purpose God has for those trials. In this life, we may never see it. In Job, Job never understood why he went through that difficulty. He never realized that there was a conversation between Satan and God. And God says, go ahead, go after him. Job never knew that that took place, probably until he got to heaven. And that's the way it is with us. Why does God put us through the things he puts us through? It's not because of sin. It's just because God wants to develop us. When you're in the midst, don't blame God. Job came to the very edge of almost doing that, but he didn't. Did he have questions? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And then in the last few chapters of the book of Job, one of the things that we discover is that Job was given a panorama of the greatness of God and that was all he needed. That was all he needed. And one of the things he discovered is the ways of God are beyond our comprehension. We can't understand it. Why does sickness come? Why does a spouse die early? Why does difficult times come into our situation? And why is it that all of these things happen? Because Undoubtedly, one of the things that happens is when trials come, it, what? Test our love for God. It tests our love for God. Uh, how important it is for us to realize that during those times, all kinds of questions come. And you can pick out the question or the statement that you usually have when trials come. Uh, we all have it. We all have it. Is there anyone here in this room that is immune from any one of these things? Not a one of us. Not a one of us. So you pick out the one or two, or three, or all of them that fit your situation. 
because they all do. It's important to realize that one of the things that usually happens is that generally when trials come, it opens the door to temptations. Temptations to do things that are inappropriate and outside of the spectrum and boundaries of God. All of us are aware of that. A trial may be perfectly harmless, perfectly harmless, but then when our attitudes and questions begin to kick in, we discover that temptation is lurking. And what is it that James wants us to realize? He wants us to realize that, well, maybe God's behind this whole thing. If you look at Job, God wasn't behind it. He gave permission, but God wasn't behind it. Satan, now God knew what Satan was going to do, but at the same time, when Satan started attacking, boy, it was pretty devastating. Lose all his possessions, lose his family, get sick. That pretty much covers it, doesn't it? And yet, in all these things, Job never crossed the line. Came close, came close, but he never crossed the line. Uh, I think that testimony could be given by every single one of us in this room of things that have happened to us in the past that we say it doesn't make any sense to me as to why this has happened. How much more effective I would be as a child of God, as a servant of God, if this had not happened. But you remember the Apostle Paul had the thorn in the flesh and what did it do to him? It humbled him but God used that humility to keep him on track. I will be the first to admit, I hate getting sick. I hate to have financial setbacks. I hate to have fractured relationships. I hate all of those things. And yet, I can go down through my life as can you and list all those things and you just have a monumental question mark in your mind. Is that right? Of course it's right. So, when temptation or trials come, don't let temptation get the best of you. Now, the interesting thing is the word temptation and the word trial are exactly the same Greek word as throughout this passage. And it gives us an idea that the word trials and the word temptation have a kind of a narrower focus. Trials can also have a positive as well as a negative side to them. And this particular Greek word apparently has that depending on the context of the word. But as we go on, one of the things that we discover, and here's what I would like to ask you this morning, 
as we look at the sequence of events that are presented to us, look, if you will, when you trum, drop down to verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. Now, he's going to do some contrasting here. But in this particular case, we are lured away and drawn away by our own desires, what we want, what we think we deserve. There is always a gestation period. There is always going to be that period of time in between the actual commitment of sin and the first thought. I don't know how long it'll be, in some cases, quite a while. In some places, maybe a very short time. But there's always a gestation period, an incubation period, if you please. And then when it is fully developed in your mind and you say, okay, I'm doing it. What's the result? Death. Death. Now, <clears throat> I have a question for you at this point. James is writing to believers, and the word brethren is used 15 times, and it's in the plural. The word brothers is used three times, sister is used one time, total of 19 times that this particular Greek word is used. If James is writing to believers, what kind of death is in view? He's talking to Christian people. And he's saying, you guys can die if you commit sin. So, it's time to commit. <laughs> what kind of death is he talking about? Spiritual death, physical death, both or neither. Okay, let's have some people stick their neck on the chopping block. <laughs> yes. Physical. It has to be physical death. All right. Is there another alternative? I have a little different perspective. <laughs> hold it, hold it, hold it. Do you two live together? No, no, no. no. Yes. Okay, go we ahead. We talk about this. <laughs> Having, because of original sin, every man is condemned to die. Every what now? Every man is condemned to physical death. Has that because of original sin. Are you getting theologic on us? <laughs> Just crazy. What were you saying early then? Go ahead. And so this physical death could be uh, sped up. It may occur sooner. Um, spiritual death is something that happened in original sin. Too. So uh, he is getting theological. I, I tend to think Does everybody understand where he's going? That it is. It is either an acceleration of physical death, or it is the the. I don't. I don't know if this is right either, because I'm really thinking off the cuff here. That. Our sin breaks fellowship with God, and it may be that fellowship is considered dead until that sin is taken care of by confessing it and forsaking it. But we can't lose salvation. You cannot lose salvation. Is that spiritual death? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this fun? Uh, Harry? I have a little different perspective. Hold it, hold it. Everybody with that perspective on this side of the room, everybody with that. I agree with the physical death, but also when you 
or in sin. You as a believer. As a vine, yes, as a vine in producing fruit. That's true too. David? I say both. You say both? So when you say spiritual death, how would you define it if you say both? I would say you lose fellowship with the Father. You lose that confidence that you have. You In other words, I should have had a, a one, two, three, four, fifth one here, uh, right? But what, is, what does it say in 1 Corinthians 11 where it says that those that take of the communion unrighteously, that there are many dead among us? And so there's that idea that I think I... I, I you don't think that's physical death necessarily? Well, I think it could be, yeah. There's many sick among us. That many of people I like through sin and that, you shorten your life. You know, you really do. Okay. <laughs> yes, ma'am. So spiritual death needs further defined, and we're defining it as yeah. breaking our fellowship, not going to hell. Exactly. Right. That's, yeah, that's, 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 that's... It's good to define words. Leave it to the writer among us. <laughs> All right, anybody else? Yes, Louise. Romans 1, 10. There is therefore no combination to those that are in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. Those are, are living not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So thank you for thank you for going to Romans. <laughs> thank you. All right, I am inclined to think like uh, the majority of you here, uh, and my reason for saying that is. If James is the very first book of the New Testament that was written, what did he have to go on from the Old Testament to prove this particular point? He had the book of Proverbs. Listen to these verses. Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Proverbs 11:19 He who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life he who pursues evil will bring about his own death The teaching of the wise is the fountain of life to turn aside from the snare of death I think in every single one of these cases he's talking about physical death Verse uh, 16 of chapter 19, he who keeps the commandment keeps his soul or his life. We're going to talk about that word soul or life. He who is careless of his ways will die. When it comes to Romans 6.23, a verse that is occasionally taken out of context and given a totally different meaning, when it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The death that is being talked about in Romans chapter 6, verse 23 is physical death, not spiritual death. Spiritual death was established way back in chapter 3 and in chapter 5, verse 12. But when you get to Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he's talking to born-again believers, and he's saying, you have two options. 
You can live in sin or you can live righteously. Living in sin is going to produce this result. Living in righteousness is going to produce this result. The wages of sin is death. That is a biblical principle that refuses to be broken. I will not ask for a show of hands, but all of us know people who were born-again Christians who chose the pathway of sinful, wicked living and died early. I am not saying in any way, shape, or form that every born-again Christian who dies early has committed sin. But I am saying that that is the pathway a born-again believer can follow. And I really want to emphasize the fact that James is talking to born-again Christians, believers, and he's saying, folks, you can choose one pathway or the other as Christian people. Any comments or questions about that? Well, the only thing to do is go to the next slide because I'm running out of time. The opportunity may knock only once, but temptation will lean on the doorbell. Boy, isn't that the truth. There are even some temptations that old age doesn't solve. Isn't that right, David? <laughs> there are some that old age does solve, but then that's another story. Another one. Martin Luther used to say, you cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. And that's true. You're going to have all kinds of weird thoughts. Yeah, I know. Some of <laughs> Even those of you without hair, it's still possible. You understand. Uh, all right. Let me go on a little bit. Uh, God does not use evil to tempt us. That's the point of verse 13. But what is it that God does do? Look, if you will, at verse 17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, there's some very interesting words that are being used here. And the word that is, I want to underscore, is lust gives birth to sin. He tells us that in verse 15. And sin brings forth death. And then in verse 18, he gives us the opposite of that. He says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And the interesting thing is that the word bring forth and the word brought forth are birth words. Birth words. And there is a theological concept in the New Testament that gives us a picture or a metaphor of birth. And what is that theological concept? Can any of you think of what it is? Born again. Born huh? Born again. Born again. What is the technical theologic word for that? 
something really fancy, I'm sure. <laughs> it starts with an R. Regeneration. 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 Now, let me go on and ask you this question. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Regeneration is exclusively an act of God when we believe in the person, provision, and promise of Christ. It is something God does for us. And God does it to us. And so the question might be asked is, if James is the first New Testament book, where would he have heard about the concept of regeneration? Is it anywhere in the Gospels? And that's the question I have. Is there any place in the four Gospels that talk about the concept of regeneration? John 3. Now, that is a private conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. I'm going to stick my head on the chopping block and go way, way out on the limb. And I'm going to make a suggestion. I will not die at the stake for this suggestion, but it's a possibility. Do you realize how unusual it would have been for Jesus to have a personal nighttime visit with a religious leader of that day. Because by and large, the Pharisees, Sadducees, the whole religious and political crowd were anti-Jesus. But here is one man who made an appointment and he was so fearful that he made the appointment to meet Jesus at night. I'm going to suggest, and I can't prove it, that the disciples knew about this visit. Christ told them, hey, I'm meeting with Nicodemus. I have, I have, I have no uh, doubt that that's a very strong possibility. So he meets with Nicodemus. And the next day or two or three later, the disciples would ask, what'd you guys talk about? What'd you guys talk about? And Jesus said, I explained the entire concept and he probably didn't use the word because the word regeneration is only used two times in the New Testament. He explained the concept of regeneration and the concept of regeneration found in John chapter 3 was extremely insightful. Nicodemus didn't really understand it, but should have because Christ says to Nicodemus, you're a ruler in Israel and you don't know this? Where would he have gotten that idea? Go back to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 and following. And the whole concept of regeneration is talked about in that passage. And he should have understood it. He should have understood it. But what happened? The Old Testament was not being allowed to clearly say what it meant. And they were putting information into the Old Testament 
and seeing the Old Testament through blinders, if you please. Now, the interesting thing is there is a verse in John's Gospel, the only place where this entire concept is talked about in the entire New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, Jesus Christ, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even those that believe on his name. And the next verse goes on to say, which were born, not of blood, physical descent, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God brings it about. God brings it about, yes. So are you suggesting that James, the brother of Jesus, who was didn't believe in him at the time of Nicodemus. Well, you don't probably, know that. You don't know when he trusted Christ. Probably consulted with John the Apostle. To, I have no. I, I have this concept. Okay. Would it seem reasonable? Yeah. You think the Christian community was interacting with each other in those early years? Remember, the Book of Acts is extremely selective. It doesn't tell us everything that's going on. Well, and I am. I admittedly, I am reading into this passage, which is kind of a kind of a no-no, but. <clears throat> Like I said, I'm going out on a limb. David. Well, in, in John, it starts in verses 1 and John 4, where it says the, the disciples were baptizing also. So somehow, I think that somehow Christ did convey this idea to them, that they themselves baptized. Uh, but what do you think the baptism was for? Well, nevertheless, they, I, I understand you're going to say it's John's baptism, the baptism right. of repentance. But nevertheless, this concept of regeneration had to be foremost, that so they had to transform uh, all right. I, I have no. I have no doubt. I have no doubt that there was yeah. that idea there, yeah. for sure. I'm just trying to reinforce your idea with scripture. But I, <laughs> yes. But I would like to underscore that they did not see regeneration as the equivalent of baptism. You are, do not. I, I understand. It was an that, identification process. Yeah. Okay. But day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized. Well, what we, we've been pricked in our hearts. We know what to do. What should we do? We've been regenerated. How do we, how do we tell people we have been regenerated? Uh, I know uh, you had this argument before. Let's let that one. I know it. And I do not think, when I talked about Acts chapter 2, that wasn't the purpose of baptism back then. It was to disassociate themselves with that generation and identify with the new generation. Well, well, it was an association thing. Okay. Well, we, can, we can go on. <laughs> By the way, there is a bunny trail there. Yes, Tim. Are you going to help me out here, Tim? Squirrel. <laughs> Where, what was the home church of Nicodemus in, in Jerusalem? You know? yeah. so I, I don't have any doubt that he, he disclosed that information once he became a believer, probably Amen. under yeah. James, you know, and For sure. that, I think that's a possibility as well. Mm. Mm. Let me go to the next one. 
Biblical re regeneration is an act of God which imparts eternal life. Its features are as instantaneous. It is non-experiential. It's not something we conjure up. It's something that is an act of God. Amen. And these two things are extremely important. Does everybody understand? Sometimes you are not going to feel it. But you just have to believe that it's happened. Why? Because you are trusting the person, provision, and promise of Christ. Amen. So far, so good? So far, so good. I, would, I do want to say squirrel real quickly. <laughs> let me, if I may, let me, if I may, just quickly give you, uh, and this, this is going to take just a, a split second. This is a bunny trail right at the very end. Case study and temptation. Let me, if I may, give you this information because I think it is very interesting. And this is uh, the tactics of Satan and the temptation. Uh, how does the tempter work? How does he approach us? How does he seek to destroy us? What are his tactics? These tactics are used an infinite number of times throughout the Bible, and they'll never change. Number one, when the tempter comes, he comes in disguise. He disguises his person, and he disguises his purpose. When the tempter comes, he comes to deceive. He deceives the provision of God, the punishment of God, and the lavish purpose of God. It never fails. This is always going to be the situation. All right, we're over time. Hey, thank you for your attention. I appreciate it. And. Uh, when we start getting into chapter two, we're really going to have fun, aren't we, Dave? Yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, thank you. Appreciate it. Have a good week.